So when we look around the world in which we live, how do you think it's going? Right? I mean, my goodness. Pick a, pick a topic. Look around, right? Day after day, we hear of all of the atrocities that are taking place, and yet here we are. Right? Of all of the things that happened just today, and, and I, you know, I intentionally don't watch the news. I, I choose to read the news so I can control the things that come in and out of my mind. But day after day, there's always something new. And it's as though every single day is something that's equally as bad or worse than something that was the day before. And yet, the world continues to move forward, seemingly without a care in the world, as though there is no recompense for sin. Does it seem that way to you, right? That everything, truth is a lie and lie is truth and at least it's presented that way and everything that takes place in the world today is whatever the flavor of the day is. Even through our television shows that we watch today, you have begun to notice that it permeates almost every facet of our existence in the world today. And as though God would dismiss it, at least the world would feel, or to excuse the sin that the world is participating in, or even, God forbid, that He would allow that sin to take place. That seems to be the culture in which we live. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 was initiating, if you will. He was introducing himself to humanity. And so he's at the beginning of his ministry, and he's just called the disciples to follow him, and he's gathering lots of attention. And there begins to be lots of questions about who this Jesus guy is, and how is it possible that God actually is flesh? And so, as we know much about the Pharisees, there were conversations, many to which Jesus had, and Jesus writes, uh, Jesus' quote is saying, rather, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Siren, Sidon than for you. And then he says to Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? Will you be exalted to heaven, Capernaum? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have, been remain, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Shocking that the places in which Jesus demonstrated initially some of his most magnificent, significant miracles, and yet he says to this group of people that it is better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for these cities. And so you, you have to ask yourself the question, what in the world were they doing? Right? What is taking place when Jesus is writing, when Jesus is speaking this? Because we know a lot of, some of which, what was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. And often Sodom and Gomorrah has been referenced as the worst of the worst. And you hear comments today that everything that's happening in the world today, and how is it any better off than Sodom and Gomorrah? 
And so we, we find ourselves in the middle of this text with Zephaniah, who enters into the picture in the Old Testament in a world that is very similar to ours. I think you will agree as we progress tonight. You see, Zephaniah is probably the least known of all of the Old Testament prophets. Now, there is some information, and we're going to talk about it tonight, about Zephaniah, but not as much as anybody else that you're going to read about in the Old Testament. The word Zephaniah, first blank on your handout tonight, it means that it's the one that Yahweh hides. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a people person, but sometimes I look around the world and I just want to hide, right? I just want to say, all right, that's enough. I've seen enough. I don't want any more of this. And so apparently, Zephaniah's parents felt the same way. So they named their son the one whom Yahweh hides. Now, it's likely that Zephaniah's best information we can gather was born during the terrible reign of Manasseh, which was, of course, Hezekiah's son. Now, he was the great, Zephaniah was the great, great grandson of the great king Hezekiah, who, as we studied in uh, the uh, series here a few months ago about the uh, kings of Judah and Israel, Hezekiah was one of the few godly kings that reigned. As a matter of fact, Judah really was one of the only ones that had any godliness in their kingship. Israel had very little to none. And so he's kin to the great king Hezekiah, which makes him a very distant relative of King Josiah, of whom in his reign did he prophesy. So Josiah, as we know, was young. He was eight years old when he was made king. And uh, so here at the age of eight, Josiah was crowned king after his father, Ammon, was assassinated. His grandfather, Josiah's grandfather's name was Manasseh, which again is when uh, Zephaniah was likely born. Now, Manasseh, if you remember from our series, he was the wicked king of Judah. And again, he was the son of Hezekiah. And so here now is Josiah, and he has, of course, apparently and thankfully, godly counsel around him. And he becomes king at eight years old. Now, I have a 12-year-old, and I'm pretty sure he's not capable of being king at 12. So I'm positive that Josiah was not capable of being king at eight. But God made him king because God had a plan for him, and God put people around him, which is an entire other message about God putting people around us. But here's Josiah coming out of this terrible reign of his father and his grandfather, uh, and then here he is king of Judah. Now in 2 Kings, and these are not on your handouts if you want to write these references down. 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 13. We, we pick up the story with Josiah. Now, Josiah is, he's listening one day. They're reading to him the books that are in the temple. And apparently, God's Word, most think it was Deuteronomy, was stuffed away in the corner. And so, they get this book out, and they begin to read from the book. Again, it's believed to be Deuteronomy. And they read what God commanded them to do. And Josiah hears all of this, and he thinks to himself immediately, 
Here's what God said we should do as he's hearing the word of God read to him. And he looks around in culture and says, these two things are not the same. Now, what happens in our world today is that, unfortunately, uh, most people aren't reading the Bible. But for those that do, they read the word of God and they look up and see things around them that are not the same. And most of the time, do nothing about it both internally and externally. Josiah did not do that. Josiah hears the Word of God. He, he looks around him and sees all of the ungodliness that is taking place. And this is what he says, 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 13. He says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. Now, just in that one sentence, we know a lot about Josiah and we know a lot about Josiah's heart. It wasn't, I've got to get right. It, was, it started with him, and then he began to look concentrically out from himself. He says, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Josiah said, here's what God said. This is the word of God. This is the standard. This is what God's commanded us to do. We are not doing that. He includes himself in that. And he says, we've got to change. And so he, he began to reform Judah. He began to purge uh, a lot of the other worship that had permeated into their country. And this led to a great revival in the nation, the southern nation of Judah. Now, so far, we can all say the same thing about our nation, right? That there have been times to where there's been great revivals. You know, we think of the 40s and 50s and 60s and the Billy Graham Crusades. And we think of uh, earlier and, and the preachers that came through even with John Wesley and, uh, you know, all of the people that came from England and came over and, and all the revivals that took place amongst God's people. We know that there's been times of great Christendom, if you will, and there's been times of great sinfulness. Even back, uh, you know, in, in Nero's reign, right after Jesus and Paul and uh, a lot of the disciples had passed away, Nero was a terrible king, and so on and so forth. And so we hear today people uh, relate that to leadership today, and they say, well, this is the worst we've ever had. I don't think it is. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it could be way better, but I'm not looking for a person to satisfy my eternal longings, Right? And neither should you. And so here's Josiah, and he says, look, here's all this that, that is wrong, and we need to fix it. And the same thing has happened many, 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 many times in our world today. This great revival takes place. But unfortunately, as because of we are human, many people believe that this revival that took place in the nation of Judah was very superficial and maybe only cosmetic. Now, certainly, according to Scripture, it wasn't that way for Josiah. But for many of the people who lived in the nation of Judah, it was very superficial. So, tell me if this sounds familiar. The people in the nation of Judah had become very self-reliant. They weren't concerned with holy living. They were externally following God but only to the extent to which it was convenient. Listen, if we've ever lived in a convenient theology world, it is today. 
We only do what we want to do. We only believe what we want to believe. And we excuse away the things in which cause conviction in our life. They wouldn't accept correction. Everyone was right in their own eyes. They began to incorporate pagan practices into their worship. And so suffice it to say that the world had permeated the church, not the church permeating the world. And so they found themselves in a situation to which King Josiah is trying to call them into holiness. He's, he's trying to call them into righteous living. He's trying to call them back from the brink of worldliness back into what God has for His chosen, might I remind you, people. And just like Josiah was attempting to do as with Zephaniah and many of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, many contemporaries of the day, God is still, as He was then and He is today, the righteous judge of the universe. And just as God did not tolerate sin with His chosen people, Israel and Judah, nor will He do the same with us. You see, just as in Zephaniah's day, everyone believes today that they are just. At least just enough to escape wrath. I think we would agree with that. Everybody thinks that they're okay. Because if they weren't, they would be flooding the churches seeking answers to their problems, right? But they're not doing that. And the reason they're not doing that is because they believe, they being uh, people that are not following Jesus, they believe that everything is fine, that God is a God of love, which you've heard many times before, which is certainly true. And so here comes Zephaniah on the scene. And so God calls Zephaniah to be on the scene. And so Zephaniah immediately follows 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 26. It says, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. So Josiah finds the book. He institutes massive change nationwide. And yet, this is what God says. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, which gives us a hint as to the proof that it's probably true that this revival that took place may have been somewhat superficial with some people. By which, the Bible says, his anger was kindled against Judah. Because of why? Because of all of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Verse 27, 2 Kings 23, and the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight. Now, if you will remember, Israel is now gone. It's nothing but Judah. And he says, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. And he says, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so God says, you know what? It's all on the surface. My wrath has not been satisfied. My wrath is still kindled. My anger is kindled against the nation of Judah. And so we pick up with Zephaniah. And so what God does is he calls Zephaniah in. And I don't know how the story went, but God calls Zephaniah in to declare the return to righteous living and the exacting of justice because of God's wrath. Now, the theme, as we'll get into Zephaniah, and we're going to have uh, three or four messages from Zephaniah, uh, it's the day of the Lord. 
And you read that in Joel and many other places. It's very popular in the Old Testament. And so Zephaniah had a couple of thoughts about the day of the Lord. It was an expression uh, that was really most frequently used in prophecy, more so in Zephaniah than in in any other Old Testament book. And so what he's trying to get across is the impending judgment of God on Judah for their disobedience. Now, again, it was a common theme among Old Testament prophets. And uh, if someone were to hear this day of the Lord uh, terminology in, as a hearer of this when it was written, uh, they believed that what it meant is that God would intervene on behalf of His chosen people, and He would become the head of the nations, and He would direct blessings to His people. Again, does that not sound so familiar? That if my person is elected, or if my person is in power, or if my person is chosen, then they can institute what I want them to do or my belief system, and then we'll be able to get things done that we want done. Does that not sound familiar? So here is this something that has been all throughout humanity, hundreds, even thousands of years ago, even in the New Testament, what did the disciples believe? The same thing that a lot of people believe today. That if Jesus would just institute his kingship and that he would annihilate all those who disagree, then everything would be great and wonderful and I would have my way and everybody would be happy. But that's not what God intended. And so during the 8th through the 6th centuries we see, which is where Zephaniah comes in, this uh, attempt to correct the distorted view. But unfortunately for Judah... And unfortunately for our world today, God's judgment always begins with God's people. Listen, if anything is ever going to change in our world, it won't be because uh, only because of this mass salvation event that takes place of many people getting saved. It will begin with God's children... 2 Chronicles 7, 14, humbling themselves, seeking God's face, turning from their wicked ways, and then God's promises that He would heal the land. Amen? That's where it starts. It it doesn't, you know, it's easy for us to say they, but it starts with me. It starts with me. And so here's this view uh, that Zephaniah is then trying to, to, uh, to go up against. And so the opening chapters reveal God as this righteous judge who was offended by this uh, religious and moral sinfulness. And so we pick up Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly, this is God uh, speaking, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, there is zero room for interpretation there. I mean, what does he mean? All you have to do is read it. He says, I will sweep away man and beast. So as though verse 2 wasn't clear enough, I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, which, remember, did not happen in the flood. I will sweep away uh, the heavens and the fish of the sea, the rubble and the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. 
And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom or Molech. Those who have turned their back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. And so we see Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah begins with the word coming to Zephaniah. Now, I would just like to say tonight that every single person in this room that's a follower of Jesus, this is exactly how your story began. The Word of God came to you. Wherever it was that you were, whether it was in church or you were at home or you were the neighbor or friend or whatever it was, you came to God through the Word of the Lord coming to you. That's how I got saved. Uh, It'll be 24 years next Friday that I've been saved. That's how that happened to me. That's how that happened to you, is Zephaniah received the word of the Lord. I received the word of the Lord. You, as a believer, received the word of the Lord. Believers and unbelievers alike all make a choice when confronted with a word from God. The problem in our world today is no one actually, very few people, actually want to hear a word from God because they're afraid of what he would say. You see, the question that we have to start with tonight is, will we respond in obedience to what God says, or will we respond in disobedience to what God says? Because that's the only two choices. Whether you're a follower or an unbeliever, your only choice is, will I obey or will I disobey? And so, Zephaniah's introductory words, the word of the Lord came. This was something that was very familiar in Old Testament prophecy. Hosea, Joel, Micah, all of those guys used the same type of conversation at the beginning of their book, which tells us this, that God has important things to say and that He intends for His people to hear what He has to say. And His intent is not just for conversation, but it's for change. It's for obedience. It's that His people would respond to His Word. You see, not only did the Word of God come to Zephaniah, but I think it's interesting to point out here that Zephaniah responded. If he didn't respond, we wouldn't have the book of Zephaniah. I'm reminded of Jonah who heard the Word, right? God, the Word of God came to Jonah, and what did Jonah do? He responded in disobedience, and he said, No way, I'm not going there. You can forget that. I don't like Nineveh, and I don't like anybody who goes to Nineveh or lives to Nineveh or likes Nineveh or who says Nineveh, and I'm not going to Nineveh, and I'm going to intentionally go as far away from Nineveh as I possibly can. And literally, he went hundreds of miles away from Nineveh because he did not want to go to Nineveh. But what did he do? He went to Nineveh, right? The very thing that he said he wasn't going to do, he did. Because as a child of God, when you are confronted with the Word of God, we have no choice but to obey. So just like with Jonah, it wasn't popular when Zephaniah heard what God had to say, but it was from God, and he was willing to say it. It's interesting as you study this, um, this judgment on the earth that Zephaniah declares Uh, was to life on land, men and animals, in the air, birds, and in the sea, the fish. Interestingly enough, these four are in the reverse order of creation. 
fish, birds, livestock, wild animals, and lastly, man. And so, this destruction that Zephaniah is declaring is a reversal of creation, if you will. So, creation is going to reverse, and then he ends with saying that the, the rubble with the wicked. Now, the only other place that this word rubble is used, it's interpreted ruin possibly in, in your version, um, it, it's used in the ruin of society due to sin. It's the only other, the only other place it's used in is, is in Isaiah chapter 3. And so, basically what Zephaniah is saying is that what God intended in creation is being reversed by sin, and that sin is ruining society. Exhibit A, right? So how is it possible? How is it possible? How do we get to such a point? I mean, in all of the things that God has done, in, in creation alone, uh, revealing Himself, Romans chapter 1, God is declaring who He is in creation alone, and yet as though that weren't enough, God said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to manifest myself through the incarnation, and I'm going to send my son, Jesus, and declare himself the son of God and to reveal what truth is. And then he declared it in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, from that moment in history which splits before and after time as it is recorded, here we are a couple thousand years later, and we have gone from 325 uh, A.D. Constantine declaring that Christianity is a, uh, the national religion to today when you can do anything you want, and it's, it's syncretism at its greatest where we're just trying to take everything, piecing it together just like Rome did, and saying you can have your religion as long as it doesn't impede on someone else's. Now, look, I'm all for you believing whatever you want to believe. If that's what you want to do, you should do that. But here's the deal. There's only one truth. Whether you believe it or I believe it or not, there's only one thing that's real. There's only one thing that's true. So how do we get to this point? Well, might I suggest that it's because religion has a way of lulling us to sleep and causing us to believe that everything is going to be okay. And so what we begin to do is to justify our own actions. Later on, we'll talk in verse 12 about, he talks about the complacency of religion and how it causes us to sleep. And so Judah thought that they could simply live as they pleased because they were chosen and God would exempt them from his wrath because, again, they were chosen. Well, this creates a real problem for us today if we're honest. You see, we're exactly where the southern nation of Judah was. There's been times of gospel prosperity as a nation. Times like today, we seem very distant from God. Even more closer to home is the reality that there are people who are also like this in their personal walk with Jesus. That what may appear on the outside is not necessarily true on the inside. And so I want to talk to you tonight about three warning signs. It's in the text, it's very clear, that Zephaniah gives us. And then I want to give you three walkaways. So it's going to get rough for a second if it hasn't been rough already. And then we're going to walk away smiling because I think God has something to say to us tonight as we uh, 
put some practicality to it. So, warning signs. Well, the first thing that we see is that there's this great human tendency that we have. And Zephaniah points it out. And, and now, I know on the surface, and, and you know, I, I didn't sugarcoat these points, and, and I'm not trying to backdoor these points. I just wrote them down as they are because they are. So, I don't want you to knee-jerk reject what we're going to say tonight because I think all of us can say that we're all guilty of every one of these at some point, okay? So let's go ahead and get that out of the way. So Zephaniah mentions these three categories or these three dangers uh, of religious offenses that uh, the nation of Judah has uh, perpetrated against God. So the first one is the danger of idolatry. Now, I mean, I hope, and I certainly, I don't want to know if it's true, but I would certainly guess that none of you have Astra poles at home, right? You don't have uh, Indian burial ground shrines in your house. I, I'm guessing that to be true. I, I certainly don't. So when we think about idolatry, I think a lot of times we attribute it to these, you know, great idolatrous moments. Well, this is what he says in verse 4. He says, I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. And so what had happened is they were worshiping God, and back in Josiah's day in 2 Kings, you can read more about it, uh, Manasseh had appointed some of these priests. Well, Manasseh's not godly, okay? And so he's not appointing the, god, he's not appointing the godliest priests. And so they began to allow uh, the world to penetrate the church, the priesthood. And so they were, they were allowing ungodliness, if you will, and so uh, false worship uh, was permeating into the temple, which sounds radically crazy, uh, but it was happening. And so they were worshiping false gods, and they were calling it Yahweh worship. And so the priests had been appointed to lead in Yahweh worship, and they're leading in idol worship. They weren't only worshiping Yahweh God, but also the pagan gods of Baal and Milcom, otherwise known as Molech. Now, Baal was the god of the Canaanites, and Molech was the deity of the Ammonites. And Baal reason was one of the main reasons that Israel failed. Remember, they no longer exist. And so, what was Baal? Well, Baal was basically the god of productivity. All right, so everything's got to be productive. And so, in today's terms, what is Baal? Well, you know, it's the gross national product, if you will. Right? It's, it's the progression of our nation being greater than everyone else. And so this worship of this uh, perpetual moving forward. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, if you'll remember from our <coughs> Hebrew study, we referenced this. Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why does Peter write this? He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we would all say, hey, look, I'm not an, I'm not an idol worshiper. This danger of idolatry, you know, I'm going to skim past that when that doesn't apply to me. But what Zephaniah is calling out here is the people that are priests in the temple, they are allowing things to pass by that shouldn't be allowed to pass by. In other words, they're allowing the world to infiltrate what's happening in the church, and their lifestyles began to be no different than the lifestyles of the people that are around them. 
And so you say, well, okay, big deal. I'm not a priest today. Well, I beg to differ because that's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, that we are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And so as believers of Jesus Christ, we are advocates for what? The presence of God. Right? The Bible says where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also among them. And so for you and I, as we go out into the world, we are performing idolatry in not representing who God is and what God stands for. You see, as priests of the Most High God, we are responsible for what we are communicating to those around us. So the question is, what are you communicating? What am I communicating? In other words, what is most important in my life? Not what I think is most important, but what you see is most important. What my family sees, my kids, my friends, what, what do they see as priority number one in my life? Is it God? Is it church? Is it, is it something else? Is it hobbies or, or whatever? I mean, there's a lot of things it could be. You see, we're responsible not just by the words that we say, but by the actions that we communicate what is important. Is God the most important thing in your life? You see, the battle for the northern and the southern kingdom, like the battle for every believer, is the battle for complete and lasting obedience. Remember when Samuel and Saul had that conversation? And Samuel basically says, look, Saul, God wants you to obey. He doesn't want sacrifice as much as he wants obedience. And I think in our world today, we've, we've traded this sacrifice and obedience thing. That if I give a little bit of my time or if I give a little bit of an effort, then I don't necessarily have to do all the things in which God has called me to do. And we've allowed ourselves to become idols. We've allowed the things around us to become idols. And so he says, look, whether it's the priests that were appointed or whether it's the priests that were called, there's idolatry taking place. The second thing he talks about is the danger of a divided heart. Now, we could spend a long time on this. We're not, but we could. He says, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the mountain, or the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom or Molech. So he calls them these adulterers that are worshiping God and other things, which is very similar to idolatry. <coughs> and so God was very patient with the nation of Israel. God was very patient with the nation of Judah. And so, so we see what happened is that the more that God dealt with them with mercy and grace, the more calloused and superficial that they became. Now, it doesn't take very long for you and I to learn this lesson. Um, if you're around children for any amount of time, it's very simple to see how the human nature is. That if you let a child get away with something very, very small, what are they going to do? See how much further they can take it, right? Don't you go out that door, and what do they do? They stand at the door frame, and they just look at you, and you say, I told you don't go out that door, and then they take another step just a little bit further out the door, right? And when we get closer or louder, what do they do? They take off running out the door. Our tendency is the same way is that the nicer that God is, 
we tend to take more and more and more. We say, oh, well, well, that didn't make him mad. Oh, well, maybe, well, this is probably, and we just keep going further and further and further, justifying the old saying, give an inch, take a mile. You see, on the outside, the nation of Judah was maintaining this godly attitude, but their hearts were very disobedient. And so as I began to think about this divided heart, I began to think about the idolatry. and I began to think about our worship. And, uh, you know, just for definition, worship is defined as anything that we ascribe worth to. Anything that we ascribe worth to. And so I began to think about well, what are the things in my life that, that I worship? Right? What, what does worship look like in my life? What, what does worship look like in our life? You see, culturally, we could say a lot of things. I mean, the culture worships many things, people, um, you know, lots of things. But I began to think about the things that, that I would say are probably most important that people worship. Number one is people worship comfort. We just want to be comfortable. I mean, I'm just like you. I want to be comfortable. It's a little hot in here to me right now, to be honest. Maybe it's Zephaniah. Uh, but yeah, so we worship comfort, right? That we want to be comfortable. And we're not going to do anything that causes us to step outside of what we have coined our comfort zone, right? I feel good in here, but I don't feel so good out here. You know, Sunday you're going to get a great chance to step outside of your comfort zone, right? If you stay for saturate. You're going to get an opportunity to knock on someone's door and deliver the gospel message to them. That's stepping outside of what's the norm, unfortunately, for believers. But we worship comfort. And if it's not comfortable, we're not going to do it. Culturally today, we not only worship comfort, we worship pleasure. Right? Whatever's pleasurable, you know, the world says if it feels good, do it. And so whatever's pleasurable, then that's what we're going uh, to go for. We're going to strive towards, and we're going to try to achieve more pleasure. And then lastly, I, as I thought about this, I thought, well, you know, comfort and pleasure are big. But you know what else the world, uh, and we're seeing this more and more today. Maybe this is just me. Uh, you know, I see this a lot in, in the, you know, we see this in the workforce. But people are worshiping leisure today, I think, more than ever. Have you noticed that? That fewer and fewer people want to work right? Nobody wants to work. Everybody wants to be off. I'd love to be off, right? I mean, who wouldn't? But, but we see this worship of leisure that it's my time, and I'm taking my time back, and, you know, be a master of your own time, and so on and so forth. And we see all these books written. Because why? Because we worship those things. And we have a divided heart. Listen, inside of you and me and everyone else that's breathing today, there is a God-shaped vacuum, and it is only satisfied by Jesus, only by Jesus. And there's no book that you can read, and there's no self-help course that you can take, and there's no psychiatrist that you can sit down with that will satisfy the longing for what is inside of every human being that is born, and that is Jesus. But what happens is it is suppressed, and it is cloaked, and it is ignored, and it is covered until you don't notice it anymore. And that's what happens in our world today is everyone has had the opportunity to be drawn into Jesus. And God is called out. The Bible said that there's none who seeks after God. Not one. There's none that are righteous. That it is God who calls us. And God has beckoned the call that all would come. God desires that all of humanity would receive him as Savior. But they don't. 
Because why? Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Because they are not satisfying the God-shaped vacuum in their heart with the only thing that will satisfy that, and it is Jesus. And so they're attempting through comfort and leisure and pleasure and many other things to fill that void. That is what is called a divided heart. And so the question is, where, where does our loyalty exist? Are we wholeheartedly committed Hopefully to Jesus, but not only to Jesus, but to the mission of Jesus. Are we committed to the mission? You see, there's a danger in idolatry and a divided heart. That we would worship the things that, as John Piper calls it, are of lesser pleasures. That we have settled to be satisfied with less than what is best. So there's the danger of a divided heart. There's the danger of idolatry. And lastly, there's the danger of apostasy. Now, clearly, hopefully, that's not you because you're here tonight. But culturally, the danger of apostasy, we're seeing it. I've mentioned this in a message a few months ago. We're seeing it all over. And this is the walking back, they call it, uh, or the deconstruction is a more popular term of faith today. There was somebody else came out this week uh, that I saw in the news. The deconstruction of faith. The danger of apostasy. What does that mean? It's turning from your faith. This is, what, this is what he says. He says, those who have turned back from following the Lord, those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. This turning back means to flinch or to go back. It means to withdraw. And so Zephaniah is saying here that what Judah is doing is they are withdrawing or they're, they're turning back to their old ways, the things that they used to depend upon, this turning back, this deconstruction, if you will. Well, you know, I don't really have a lot to say on it because I don't think there's a lot to say about it, but I will say this, that if you quote, lost your faith, which by the way is impossible, you never had faith. I mean, either faith is eternal or it's not. That's the only two ways it works. And I don't have any uh, contingency or I don't have any skin in the game or I don't have any, uh, you know, control over how that works. The way that it works is God existed before everything existed. God created. God will exist when nothing else exists and we're all in eternity. That's just how it works. And salvation is eternal, and it's an eternal gift that God grants to us. And Ephesians says that it's not by works. And so I didn't do anything to earn it, by, but by golly, I'm glad he gave it to me. Amen? Now, that's the South Mississippi term, isn't it? By golly. And so here, God gives us faith. And for someone to say, oh, I was walking with God, I was following Him, and I believed in Jesus, and then I turned my back, and I lost my faith, and I don't believe in that anymore. Well, that is fine if you say that, and it's very, it's heartbreaking to hear it. But the reality is this, is that when you get saved, listen, this is very important, when you get saved, you are never the same again. Never the same again. Never the same again. You are either saved or you are lost. There are no in-betweens. And there's no vacillating, right? If you're lost and you get saved, the Bible says when you have tasted and seen, you are not going back, right? 
I, I'm, I'm about to start preaching tonight. Listen to this. You are not going back. It is too good to know God to turn from Him. And so this danger of apostasy sounds radically uh, foreign to us, but unfortunately in our culture it is becoming more and more uh, communicated. That's the word we'll use. So he's talking about these people that have fallen away completely. Now how does this work? Well, it manifests itself through a self-sufficient spirit. I mean, think about it. I've got, I can pave my own way. I, I don't need God to do that for me. I can do it myself. Well, my faith didn't do this for me. Well, that's because you had a faith that it was in you. It wasn't in God. Your expectation was in what you wanted. It wasn't what God had in store for you. There's a lot of things that I want God to do, but that doesn't mean he's going to do them. That's what I desire, right? And it's easy for me to desire things for God to do because God can do anything, and I can fathom all the things that my sinful heart would desire for God to do for me. You're the same way. And so I have to be careful that I, that I don't divide my heart in following after myself and after God. And so that's what Zephaniah is warning against. And so we can all take a deep breath now because we're past the wrathful part. Now we get to the part which I'm very excited about is how do we respond to that? All those things are true. All those things are scary. All those things are certainly going to take place. God didn't say it, which, you know, Judah failed just four years after Josiah died, which we'll get to in a second. All those things happened. The day of the Lord was not only for present uh, captivity of Judah, but it was also for the end times when God does split the sky. Okay? And so what's our takeaway? Well, the question really is this, not really what's our takeaway. What I want to leave you with is what is God's desire? Why is God telling this to Judah? Why do we have this preserved 2,000 years later? Why tonight on January the 26th is God giving us this word? What does he want to do? What does he want us to do? What is God's desire? Well, I think you're going to be encouraged by this. Here's God's desire. Number one. God's desire is that our hearts would be sensitive to God, to what God wants and to do among His people, what God wants to do among His people and His creation, right? That we would be sensitive to what God wants to do. What does God want to do in your sphere of influence? Why are you where you are? We have to be sensitive to what God wants to do among His people, what is God calling us to do? Oh, well, you know, there's 20,000 people in 39503. What should we do about that, God? Well, they know where the church is, and, you know, we can go to three or four services, and, you know, we got a lot of room. Or we can say, Jesus said, go therefore, right? And so we said, okay, I'm going to take the gospel, and I'm going to go, Right? We have to be sensitive to that. God, what are you calling me to do? God, not what things are comfortable or pleasurable or leisure for me or easy or things that I like, but God, help me to see what you want me to do because I know what you're going to do is going to start with your people. 2 Kings twenty two nineteen. because your heart, this is God talking to Josiah, because your heart was penitent or your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. You have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. 
What should we do in light of what we've heard? We should say, God, would you allow our hearts to be sensitive to whatever it is that you want us to do? That just when you call, even if it is just a whisper, that we would hear. You see, God's love is not only tender as he points to Josiah's heart, but God's love is also tough. The nation of Judah would fall to Nebuchadnezzar four years after Josiah died. Four years. God kept his promise. That's what that means. God's tough love for the nation of Judah was that he would follow through because there are consequences to your actions. Does God love you? Of course he does. Can God, has God, will God save you? Yes. But you cannot live any way that you want to live and think that there are no consequences. The world cannot do whatever the world wants to do. Listen, there will be a lot, there will be a lot of accountability for a lot of the things that are being said, for everything that's being said today. So here's the question. Well, how do we respond? How can we have a sensitive heart? How can we be sensitive to what God wants for us? Well, we can't have our own agenda. Listen, I know we all have great ideas. I think I have great ideas. I'm sure you have great ideas. But at the end of the day, it's not what my idea is. God, what is it that you want us to do? I think so many times we're like, we're going to go do something for God. And then we're like, well, what does God want us to do? I don't know, but let's go do something for God. And then we get way over here and we're like, all right, what does he want us to do? And we say, well, I'm not sure, but I mean, there's a lot of things we could do. So let's just do something and let's call it for God. Right, and so we start doing these things, and whatever they may be, and I'm not going to pick anything. And we just think that we got to go. But listen, it starts with stopping. I was studying the spiritual discipline of solitude this week. It starts with stopping and sitting in silence and waiting and listening. Now I'm not talking about worshiping leisure. I'm talking about waiting on the Lord. I'm talking about waiting and sitting and saying, God. What do you want me to do? I, I, there's a new song out. I don't know if you've heard it. It's called Crazy People. It's by Casting Crowns. And he wrote this, Mark Hall, lead singer, he wrote the song because they had gone to, I heard the story today, so they had gone to uh, the uh, Kentucky uh, Ark exhibit, and uh, him and a couple of other guys, and they were talking about just the magnitude of that. And he said, one of the guys asked, Mark, what would you do? If you came home one day and your neighbor was building an ark, he said, what would you think? That's a great thought, isn't it? And uh, so Mark Hall's response was, I would think my neighbor is crazy. And so would you. So would I, right? Never rained before, never a cloud in the sky. Why are you building a boat? Well, God said it's going to rain, right? Crazy. And so he said he began to think about all of the things that were done you know, radical things that have been accomplished for the kingdom of God. And he said, I could only think of crazy people. Right? Because every time somebody did something that was radical for the kingdom, people looked at them and said, you're crazy. Right? Think about it. It's so true. Such a simple thought, but so true. And so the question is, what is it that God is calling you to do that's crazy. Zephaniah showed up on the scene to God's chosen people and said, 
you're all about to die. That's crazy. Jonah shows up to Nineveh and says, y'all are listening. I just spent three nights in a whale stomach, right? That's crazy. It's crazy the things that we could fathom. Imagine the things that we can't fathom that God wants to accomplish. But it starts with listening. We must seek the face of God as to what He desires, not what we desire. We can do a lot of good things, but we don't want to do good things. We want God to do great things. Next week, we'll see God addresses His people first in 1 Peter 4, 17. uh, For it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so Peter says that it starts with us. Revival, revival doesn't start with those in charge. It starts with me. So listen, I know, you know, there's been a lot of uh, political implications maybe in a few things that I've said. But it, it's not going to start with someone else elected. That's not going to change it. It's not going to start with whoever you think should be local or, you know, in charge, even here. It starts with you. It starts with me. I can't say, well, look, if Tony will get on board, then I'm on board. No, it's God, what do you want me to do? It's the same thing for you and everyone else. It's, God, I want to know what you want, what role, why am I still breathing? What is it that you have in store for me? It starts with me. I can't look out and say, well, if they get right, then God would move. I have to say, God, would you move in my heart? God, would you correct my divided heart? Would you correct my idolatrous heart? Right? It starts with me. So number one, that God desires that our hearts would be sensitive to what he wants to do among his people and his creation. Number two, number two, God desires that we would be willing to invest in our generation to change the next. That we would be willing to invest in our generation to change the next. That, that we wouldn't look at it the way that we've been taught. We wouldn't look at it the way that our ancestors and family members did it, but we would look at it as the way that God wants us to see it. That there are people in front of us that are younger than us that we've experienced things that they haven't experienced before, that God can use our wisdom and insight and experience to teach them what God wants them to do. That's the problem that you see throughout all the Old Testament with the kings and even with the judges, is that they wouldn't teach the next generation. And then you'd have such ungodliness take place, and then God would send someone, and then they would raise up. And then what would they not do? They would not repeat that to the next generation which is number three on the pathway, multiply. It's not for us to hoard all of the information. It's not to grow into spiritual giants ourselves because the only way we ever become a spiritual giant, quote, is that when we're leading other people to become spiritual giants. That God is using us to invest in the next generation. Well, how in the world do we get that from our text today? Well, Josiah was eight when he became king. Okay, he was eight. He was around 16, it's believed, when he heard the book of Deuteronomy read. So here is someone that's in their teens, early 20s. Zephaniah shows up on the scene. And what does he do? Zephaniah is helping Josiah. He's instructing the nation of Judah. But Jeremiah is also in the picture here. 
It's believed that they were around the same time and the same age, and so Zephaniah is older. And so Zephaniah, now if you've ever read Jeremiah, I mean, what a great book, what, how God used him, right? And so here is God using Zephaniah to lead his generation to lead the next generation. Zephaniah was pivotal in working with God that resulted in changing the next generation. And so the question would be that you would ask as we're sensitive to what God wants us to do is, God, who can I partner with you with that I can lead? I mean, of course, you know, it'd be easy for me to stay in a D group, but I mean just in life, right? God, who, who can I invest in because somebody's invested in me? Who can I lead because someone's led me? That's what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul didn't say, look, don't do what I do, just do what I say. No, Paul said, follow me because I'm following Jesus, right? And so for us, we ought to say, look, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to invite you to follow me because I'm trying to be like Jesus, and I'm trying to do my best to follow him and to listen to what he has in store for me, and I want to leave my mark where I'm at today. I don't want to leave and nobody ever knew anything that I did for the kingdom of God because I want to do what God wants me to do, Right? And I want to be an instrument for, for change in this generation. I don't want to walk out of my life and look back over my life and see all of the atrocities that took place and I went and hid in the corner. That's not what God called us to do. You see, as leadership goes, so goes those who follow. So you're leading somebody somewhere. Friends, family members, kids, church members, classmates and community, whatever. You're leading somebody somewhere. The question is where? Where are you leading people? What, what are the, it goes back to the divided heart. What is it that's most important in our lives? You see, God's desire is that we would infiltrate our culture and invest in this generation so that the next generation would be different. You say, oh, well, look, I mean, you know, the next generation, there's not going to be a next generation at the rate this world is going. Well, I'm not going to be the one to determine that. So I'm going to make a difference in my circle. And whatever difference makes is what it's going to make. But it's our, I think it's our responsibility as believers to say, God, I'm going to be sensitive to whatever you're calling me to do. Do you think Zephaniah wanted to show up and say that? No. Zephaniah wanted to show up and say, you guys are doing great. There's a few things you could change, but so far God still loves you, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the palatable message that we want to communicate. But what if we dug our heels in and say, you know what? I'm going to say what God wants me to say. I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to let my opinion get involved. I'm going to do what God wants me to do because I know that God wants to do something. I know that God's not finished yet because the lights are still on, right? And so I know that God wants me to do something. And so I'm going to listen and I'm going to say, okay, God, whatever crazy thing you want me to do, I'm willing to do it in my generation. So we would invest, that we would be sensitive and number three, that we would not be satisfied with small change, but we would desire great change in our own lives first. I want you to change. You want me to change. But I need to change before you need to change. And you need to change before I need to change, right? And so here's what happens. I know this is the last blank, but I need you to listen. I know this is what happens. We start making small changes, and we're satisfied with that. 
We're satisfied with, well, I, you know, I said I wanted to spend more time with God, but I did read once last week, right? I said I wanted to pray, and I did pray once last month, right? I said I wanted to participate in community group or saturate or mission work or fill in the blank, and, and I thought about it, or I gave 50 more dollars, or I sent someone in my place, or whatever it may be, right? And we're satisfied with the small change. But what if, listen to me, what if you became dissatisfied with small change? What if you said God is bigger than small change? What if you said God wants more out of my life than just small change? What if we say I'll only be satisfied? This is what your memory verse was in in, uh, D group. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. Right? When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, God fills us. When we hunger and thirst for small change, you know what the world does? It fills you with small things, and you think you're satisfied. Look, I ate French fries yesterday, and I regretted it. It felt awesome in the moment, but it was a terrible decision. And it's the same thing with small change, is that we take small change, and we're satisfied with it. And we think, this is very nutritious for me. And the reality is, it's not. God has such greater things in store. And so many people live their lives satisfied with small change and never make an impact for the kingdom of God. And no one will look back in their life and call them crazy for the kingdom because they didn't do anything because they were satisfied with small change. Oh, that we would press into God, that we would listen that we would listen even to the hard things and that we would receive them as such. Look, we can't be willing to only hear what we want to hear, but we must be willing to hear what we need to hear. And so it starts with us being sensitive to what God has in store for us, that we would be willing and that we would not settle for lesser pleasures. That is God's desire for us. Our tendency, as we talked about, is to do other things. But God has so much greater desires for us, as we will see through the book of Zephaniah. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I'm grateful that sometimes your word stings.